45. Hap. As most opera dancers' lives are passed in a pirouette, they must naturally have enormous twists. The geographical distribution of opera dancers is extremely well defined, as their names implies, for they most do congregate wherever an opera house exists. Some, however, descend to the non-lyric drama, and condescend to illustrate the plays of Shakespeare. It is said that the classical manager of Drury Lane Theatre has secured a company of them to help the singers he has engaged to perform Richard III, Coriolanus, and other historical plays. Why has a clock always a bashful appearance? Because it always keeps its hands before its face. Kidnapping extraordinary. The Chronicle has been making a desperate attempt to come out in Punch's line. He has absolutely been trying the to 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 it but has made a most melancholy failure of it. We could forgive him his efforts to be facetious though we doubt that his readers will if he had not kidnapped three of our own particular pets the very men who lived and grew in the world's estimation on our wits, we mean Peter Borthwith, Ben Disraeli, and our own immortal Sithorpe. Of poor Sid, the joker of the Chronicle says in last Tuesday's paper, we regret to hear that call. Sithorpe has suffered severely by cutting himself in the act of shaving. His friends, however, will rejoice to learn that his whiskers have escaped, and that he himself is going on favorably. We spent an entire night in endeavoring to discover where the wit lay in this cutting paragraph, but were obliged at last to give it up. Convinced that we might as well have made songs of the city. Remember thee what am I, Mary? Wherefore seek to know? For mystery is the very soul of love. Enough. That wedding thee I'm not below. Enough. That wooing thee I'm not above. You smile. Dear girl and look into my face as if you'd read my history in my eye. I'm not, sweet maid, a footman out of place, for that position would, I own, be shy. What am I then, you ask? Alas, tease clear, you love not me, but what I had a year, what am I marry? Well, then, must I tell, and all my stern realities reveal? Come close then to me, dearest, listen well, while what I am no longer I conceal. I serve my fellow men, a glorious right, thanks for that smile, dear maid, I know tease do, yes, many have I served by day and night, with me to aid them, none need vainly sue, nay, do not praise me, love, but nearer come, that I may whisper, I'm a bailiff's bum, why start thus from me, am I then a thing to be despised and cast aside by thee, oh, while to every one I fondly cling and follow all, will no one follow me, Oh, if it comes to this, dear girl, no more shalt thou have cause upon my suit to frown, I'll serve no writs again, from me secure, John Doe may run at leisure up and down, come to my arms, but do not weep the less, thou art the last I'll ear take in distress, a pair of ducks, pray, Sir Peter, said a brother alderman to the city laureate the other day, while discussing the merits of Galloway's plan for a viaduct from Holborn Hill to Skinner Street, pray, Sir Peter, can you inform me what is the difference between a viaduct and an aqueduct? Certainly, replied our city correspondent, with amazing condescension, a viaduct is a land duck, and an aqueduct is a water duck. The querist confessed he had no idea before of the immensity of Sir Peter's scientific knowledge. Punch's Theatre, Margaret M.A.Y.F.I.L.D., O.R., The Murder of the Lone Farmhouse, Prodigious, The Minor Drama Has Exhausted Its Stock of Major Crimes. Parasite is out of date, infanticide has become from constant occurrence decidedly low, homicide grows tame and uninteresting, and fratricide is a mere bagatelle, not worthy of attention, 
the dramatist must therefore awaken new sympathies by contriving new crimes he must invent. In this the Sadler's Wells genius has been fortunate. He has brought forward a novelty in assassination, which is harrowing in the extreme, it may be called farmhouse side. Just conceive the pitch of intense sympathy it is possible for one to feel, while beholding the murder of a lone farmhouse. Arson is nothing to it. Out of this novel domiciliary catastrophe the author of Margaret Mayfield has formed a melodrama, which in every other respect is founded, like a chancellor's decree, upon precedent, it being a good old-fashioned cutthroat piece of the leather breeches and gaiter, plow and pitchfork school. A country in parlor of course commences the story, where certain characters assemble, who reveal enough of themselves and of the characters assumed by their fellows at that time amusing themselves in the green room to let any person the least acquainted with the literature of melodrama into the secret of the entire plot. There is the villain, who is as usual in love with the heroine, and in league with three ill-looking fellows sitting at a separate table. There too is the old established farmer, who has about him a considerable sum of money a fact he mentions for the information of his pop companions, on purpose to be robbed of it. The low comedian as usual disports himself upon a three-legged stool dressed in the never-to-be-worn-out short non-continuations, skirtless coat, and eccentric tile, a scene or two afterwards, and we are surprised to find that the farmer is safely housed, and that he has not been robbed upon a bleak moor on a dark stage, but we soon feel a sensation of awe, when we learn that before us is the interior of the very farmhouse that is going to be murdered, the farmer and his wife go through the long-standing dialogue of stage stereotype, about love and virtue, the price of turnips, and their only child, and the husband goes to some fair with a friend, who had just been rejected by his sister-in-law in favor of the villain, the coast being left clear, the villain and his accomplices enter, and we know something dreadful is going to happen, for the farmer's wife is gone out of the way on purpose not to interrupt, the villain draws a knife and drags his sweetheart into an outhouse, and then the wife comes on to describe what is passing, for the audiences of Sadler's Wells would tear up the benches if they dared to murder out of sight, without being told what is going on. Accordingly, we hear a scream, and the sister of the screamer exclaims, Ah, horror! He draws the knife across her throat. Great applause! But no, she takes up a broken plowshare and escapes. A slight tendency to hiss. Now he seizes her hair. He throws her down. Ah! See how the blood streams from her. Intense delight as the woman falls flat upon the boards, supposed to be overcome with dread. A bloody knife, of course, next enters, grasped by the villain, who, as usual, remarks he is sorry for what has happened, but it can't be helped, and must be made the best of. The woman having suddenly recovered, escapes into an additional private box, or trunk, placed on the stage for that purpose, stating that she will see what is going on from between the cracks. The villain then murders the child, and walks off with his hands in his pocket, leaving, as is always the case, the fatal knife in a most conspicuous part of the stage, which for some seconds it has all to itself. The farmer comes in takes up the knife, and falls down in a fit, just in time for the constables to come in and to take him up for the murder. The wife jumps out of the box, and by her assistance a tableau is formed for the act drop to fall to. Our readers, of course, guess the rest. The farmer is condemned to be hanged, and in the last scene he is one of the never-omitted procession to the gallows, at the queue. Now then, I am ready to meet my fate like a man. The screeching that case always made and provided is heard at a distance. Hold, hold, he is innocent. 
are the next words, and enter the wife with a pair of pistols, and a witness. The executioner pardons the condemned on his own responsibility, and the villain comes on, on purpose to be shot, which is done by the farmer, who seems determined not to be accused of murder for nothing. To these charming series of murders we may add that of the Queen's English, which was shockingly maltreated, without the least remorse or mitigation. The two last important sittings, Mr. Ross has had the last sitting of the Princess Royal for her portrait, and the Tories the last sitting of Mr. Walter for Nottingham. S.I.B.D.H.O.R.P.I.A. in Problems, Colonel Sithorpe presents his compliments to his dear friend and fellow, Punch, and seeing in the times of Wednesday last a long account of the extraordinary arithmetical powers of a new calculating machine, invented by Mr. Worthyember, he is desirous of asking the inventor, through the ubiquitous pages of Punch, whether his, Mr. W. Single Quote S. Apparatus which, as his friend George Robbins would say, is a lot which seems to be worthy only of the great bidder who thinks he had him there whether this automatical American, or steam calculator, could solve for him the following queries, if the House of Commons be divided by Colonel Sithorpe on the Corn Laws, how much will it add to his credit, how many times will a joke of Colonel Sithorpe's go into the London newspapers, extract the root of Mr. Roebuck's family tree, and say whether it would come out in anything but vulgar fractions, required the difference between political and imperial measures, and state whether the former belong to dry or superficial, if 36 be 6 square, what is street James is square, and if the first circles be resident there, say whether this may not be considered as an approximation to the quadrature of the circle, state the contents of the House of Commons upon the next motion of Sir Robert Peel, and whether the malcontents will be greater or less, required the capacities in feet between a biped, a quadruped, and a centipede, and say whether the foot of Mr. Joseph Hume, being just as broad as it is long, may not be considered as a square foot, express, in harmonious numbers, the proportion between the rhyme and the reason of Mr. Benjamin D. single quote Israeli single quote as revolutionary epic, and say whether this is not a question of inverse ratio, whether, in political progression, the two extremes, Duke of Newcastle and Fiaguz O'Connor, are equal to the mean Joseph Hume. Is it possible to multiply the difficulties of the Whigs? And, if so, am I the figure for the part? What is the difference between the squares of Masros, Tom Spring and John Gully? And whether the one is the fourth, fifth, or what power of the other? A slap at John C.H.I.N.A.M.A.N.'s chops. Peter Borthwick lately arrived at the highest possible pressure of indignation, while reading some of the insolent fulminations from the Celestial Empire. But Peter was sorely at a loss to account for their singular names. He was instantly enlightened by the Finsbury interpreter, our Tom Duncombe, who rendered the matter clear by asserting it was because the emperor was very partial to a Hume leads W.A.K.L.E. follows. Joe Hume has written over to a Lockley postage and paid begging of him to take warning by his beating at Leeds, as he much fears, should Mr. Lockley continue his present line of conduct. When he next presents himself to his Finsbury constituents there is great probability of punch. So are the London C.H.A.R.I.V.A.R.I. Volume 1. For the week ending October 30th, 1841. The Great Creature. That Great Creature. Like some other Great Creatures. Happened. As almanacs say. About this time. To be somewhat out at elbows. Not in the way of costume. For the very plenitude of his wardrobe was the cause which produced this effect. Inasmuch as the word, received, in the veritable autograph of Masros, Moleskin and Corderally could nowhere be discovered annexed to the bills thereof, a slight upon their powers of penmanship which roused their individual, collective, 
and coparsonary iris to such a pitch, that they, Masros, Moleskin and Corderoli, through the medium of their attorneys at law, Masros, Gallowsworthy and Pickles, a furtive house in, forwarded a writ to the unfortunate Hannibal Fitzflummery Fitzflam, the which written process of time, being the legal seed, became ripened into a very vigorous execution, and was consigned to the care of a gentleman holding a civil employment with a military title, viz, that of officer, to the sheriff of Middlesex, with strict injunctions to the said anything but civil or military nondescript officer, to secure and keep the person of Hannibal Fitzflummery Fitzflam till such time as the debt due to Masros, Moleskin and Corderoli, and the legal charges of Masros, Gallowsworthy and Pickles, should be discharged, defrayed, and liquidated. Frequent were the meetings of Masros, Gallowsworthy and Pickles and their man-trap, and as frequent their disappointments, Fitzflam always gave them the double, having procured leave of absence from the town managers, and finding the place rather too hot to hold him, he departed for the country, and, as fate would have it, arrived at the inn then occupied by Mr. Horatio Fitzharding Fitzfink, in this out-of-the-way place he fondly imagined he had never been heard of, judged then of his surprise, after his dinner and pint of wine, at the following information, Fitz, waiter, yes, sir, who have you in the house, fest of company, sir, always, sir, oh, of course, anyone in particular, yes, sir, very particular, one gentleman very particular, indeed, has his bed warmed with brown sugar in the pan, and drinks ass's milk, sir, for breakfast, strange fellow, but I mean any one of name, yes, sir, a German, sir, with a name so long, sir, it take all the indoor servants and a stable helper to call him up of a morning, you don't understand me, have you any public people here, yes, sir, great man from town, sir, belongs to the theater Mr. Fitzflam, sir, quite the gentleman, sir, thank you for the compliment, bowing low, no compliment at all, sir, would you like to see him, sir, sell you a ticket, sir, or buy one of you, sir, what, house expected to be full, sir, sure to sell it again, sir, what the devil are you talking about, the play, sir, Fitzflam, sir, there's the bill, sir, and bell rings, there's the bell, sir, coming, exit waiter, the first thing that suggested itself to the mind of Mr. Hannibal Fitzflummery Fitzflam was the absolute necessity of insisting upon that insane waiter submitting to the total loss of his well-greased locks, and enveloping his outward man in an extra strong straight waistcoat. the next was to look at the bill, and there he saw, horror of horrors, the name, the bright ancestral name, the name he bore, bursting forth in all the reckless impudence of the largest type and the reddest vermilion, anger, rage, and indignation like so many candidates for the exalted but non-agreased pole, rushed tumultuously over each other's heads, each anxious to gain the ascendant in the bosom of Mr. Hannibal Fitzflummery Fitzflam, to reduce a six-and-ninepenny gossamer to the facsimile of a bereaved muffin in mourning by one vigorous blow wherewith he secured it on his head, grasped his ample cane and three half-sucked oranges in case it should come to pelting, and rushed to the theater, was the work of just twelve minutes and a half, in another brief moment, Payment having been tendered and accepted, Fitzflam was in the boxes, ready to expose the swindle and the swindler. The first act was over, and the audience were discussing the merits of the supposed Rochus. He is a sweet young man, said a simpering damsel to a red-headed Lothario, with just brains enough to be jealous, and spirit enough to damn the player. 
I don't see it, responded he of the Rufusian locks. Such dear legs, dear legs duck legs you mean, miss, and such a voice, voice, I'll holler with him for all he's worth. Ha done, do, I shan't, Fitz Flams and Umbug, sir, exclaimed Hannibal Fitz Flummery Fitz of that ilk, and sir to you, retorted the child of earth with the golden hair. I suppose I'm a right to speak my mind of that or any other chap I pays to a laugh at. It's a tragedy. James, all the funnier when sick as him comes to play in them. Hush, the curtain's up. So it was, and bravo, bravo, shouted the ladies, and hurrah, shouted the gentlemen. Never had Mr. Hannibal Fitzflummery Fitzflam seen such wretched acting, or heard such enthusiastic applause. Round followed round, until worked up to frenzy at the libel upon his name, and, as he thought, his art, he vociferously exclaimed, Ladies and gentlemen, that man's a deity imposter, turn him out, throw him over, break his neck, shouted the gods, shame shame, called the boxes, you're drunk, exclaimed the pit to a man, I repeat that man is, take that, an apple in Fitzflam's eye, I say he is another, there it is, in his other eye person altogether a eh? boxkeeper. Nothing of the sort, eh, constable. I'll take, take that fellow out. Allow me to be off. Off. I am out. Out. Let me request. Order. Order. Hiss. Hiss. Oh. Oh. Dot. Dot. Fit. Fit. Boo. Boo. Whoop. Oh. Dot. Here Mr. Fitzfink came forward, and commenced bowing like a mandarin while the gentleman who had blacked Fitzflam's eye desisted from forcing him out of the box, to hear the great creature speak, Fitzfin commenced, ahem ladies and gentlemen, surrounded as I am by all sorts of bravos from all parts of the house, friends, friends in the boxes, bravo, from boxes, with violent waving of handkerchiefs, friends in the pit, hurrah, and sundry excited heps performing extraordinary aerial gyrations, and last, not least in my dear love, friends in the gallery, raptures of applause, five minutes whistling, three chandeliers and two heads broken, and the owners of seventeen corns stamped up to frenzy, need I fear the malice of an individual, never, never, from all parts of the house, could I deceive you, an enlightened public, no, no, impossible, all fudge, would I attempt such a thing, no, no, by no manner of means, I am, Ladies and gentlemen, Fitzflam, Fitzflam, I bow to your judgment. I have witnesses, shall I produce them? Mumber said two of his most enthusiastic supporters, scrambling out of the pit, and getting on the stage, don't trouble yourself, we know you, Bombs. Hurrah, to Fitzflam in boxes, shame, shame, we will swear to you, Bombs. Fitzflam forever, and we don't care who knows it, Bombs. noble fellows. We arrest you at the suit of Masros, Moleskin and Corderoli, Regent's Quadrant, Tailors, Attorneys, Masros, Gallowsworthy and Pickles, Affirmative House Inn, Plaintiff Claims 54L, Debt and 65L, Costs, so come along, will you? It was an exceedingly fortunate thing for the representatives of the Sheriff of Middlesex that their exit was marked by more expedition than elegance, for as soon as their real purpose was known. Fitzflam as the audience supposed Fitzfink to be would have been rescued via armies, as it was, they hurried him to a back room at the inn, and carefully double-locked the door, it was also rather singular that from the moment of the officer's appearance, 
The gentleman in the boxes whose doubts had caused the disturbance immediately owned himself in the wrong, apologized for his mistake, and withdrew. As the tragedy could not proceed without Fitzfink, the manager proposed a hornpipe and fetters and general dance by the characters, instead of the last act which was accepted, and loudly applauded and encored by the audience, seated in his melancholy apartment, while guarded by the bailiff, certain of being discovered and perhaps punished as an impostor or compelled to part with all his earnings to pay for coats and continuations he had never worn. The luckless Horatio Fitzharding Fitzfink gave way to deep despondency, and various us, and us. A tap at the door was followed by the introduction of a three-cornered note addressed to himself. The following were its contents, sir. It appears from this night's adventure my name has heretofore been full to you, and on the present occasion your impersonation of it has been full to me. We are thus far quits. As the real Simon Pure, will tell you what to do. Protest you are not the man. Get witnesses to hear you say so, and when taken to a London as you will be and the men are undeceived, threaten to bring an action against the sheriff unless those harpies, Masros, Gallowsworthy and Pickles, give you twenty L, for yourself, and a receipt in full for the debt and costs. Keep my secret, I'll keep yours. Burn this. HFF. No sooner read than done and all came to pass as the note predicted. Gallowsworthy and Pickles grumbled, but were compelled to pay. Fitzflam and Fitzfink became inseparable. Fitzflam was even heard to say, he thought in time Fitzfink would make a decent walking gentleman, and Fitzfink was always impressed with an opinion that he was the man of talent, and that Fitzflam would never have been able to succeed in starring it where he had been the great creature. F.U.S.B.O.S. N.B. The author of this paper has commenced adapting it for stage representation. The desire of pleasing. May I be married? Ma, said a lovely girl of fifteen to her mother the other morning. Married, exclaimed the astonished matron. What put such an idea into your head? Little Emily, here, has never seen a wedding, and I'd like to amuse the child, replied the obliging sister, with fascinating naivete. The heir of A.P.P.L.E.B.I.E. Chapter V.I.I.I. A serious accident to the double base was the extraordinary occurrence alluded to in our last chapter. It appeared that, contrary to the usual custom of the class of musicians that attend evening parties, the operator upon the double base had early in the evening shown slight symptoms of inebriety, which were alarmingly increased during supper time by a liberal consumption of wine, ale, gin, and other compounds. The harp, flagellate, and first violin had prudently abstained from drinking at their own expense, and had reserved their thirstiness for the benefit of the bibicles of the founder of the feast, and, consequently, had only attained that peculiar state of sapient freshness which invariably characterizes quadrille bands after supper, and had, therefore, overlooked the rapid obfuscation of their more imprudent companion in their earnest consideration of themselves. Bacchus has long been acknowledged to be the Cicerone of Cupid, and accordingly the god of wine introduced the god of love into the bosom of the double bass, who, with a commendable feeling of sociality, instantly invited the cook to join the party. Now Susan, though a staid woman, and weighing, moreover, sixteen stone, was fond of a innocent bit of nonsense, kindly consented to take just a sip of red port wine with the performer upon catgut cables, and everything was progressing allegro when Cupid wickedly stimulated the double bass to chuck Susan's double chin, and then, with the frenzy of a bacchanal, to attempt the impossibility of encircling the ample waist of his dulcine. This was carrying the joke a little too far, and Susan, 
equally alarmed for her reputation and her habit shirt, struggled to free herself from the embrace of the votary of Apollo, but the fiddler was not to be so easily disposed of, and he clung to the object of his admiration with such pertinacity that Susan was compelled to redouble her exertions, which were ultimately successful in embedding the double bass in the body of his instrument. The crash was frightful, and Susan, having vainly endeavored to free herself from the incubus which had fastened upon her, proceeded to scream most lustily as an overture to a faint. These sounds reached the supper room, and occasioned the diversion in John's favor, a simultaneous rush was instantly made to the quarter from whence they proceeded, as the whole range of accidents and offenses flashed across the imaginations of the affrighted revelers. Mrs. Wadley got decided that the China tea service was no more. Mrs. Applebite felt certain that the heir had tumbled into the tea urn, or had cut another tooth very suddenly. The gentlemen were assured that a foray had taken place upon the hats and cloaks below, and that cabs would be at a premium and colds at a discount. The ladies made various applications of the rest of the catalogue, whilst old John wound up the matter by the consolatory announcement that he knowed the fire hadn't been put out by the engines in the morning. The general alarm was, however, converted into general laughter when the real state of affairs was ascertained, and Susan having been recovered by burning feathers under her nose, and pouring brandy down her throat. Preparations were made for the disinterment of the double bass, to all attempts to effect such a laudable purpose. The said double bass offered the most violent opposition, declaring he should never be so happy again, and earnestly entreated Susan to share his heart and temporary residence. Her refusal of both seemed to cause him momentary uneasiness, for hanging his head upon his breast he murmured out, Now she has left me her loss to deplore, and then burst into a loud hazard that rendered some suggestions about the police necessary, which Mr. Double Bass treated with a contempt truly royal. He then seemed to be impressed with an idea that he was the index to a little warbler, for at the request of no one he proceeded to announce the titles of all the popular songs from the time of Shield downwards. How long he would have continued this vocal category is uncertain, but as exertion seemed rather to increase than diminish his boisterous merriment, the suggestions respecting the police were ordered to be adopted, and accordingly two of the force were requested to remove him from the domicile where he was creating so much discord in lieu of harmony. Double bass still continued deaf to all entreaties for silence and progression, and when a stretcher was mentioned grew positively furious, and insisted that, as he had a conveyance of his own, he should be taken to whatever destination they chose to select for him on, or rather in that vehicle. Accordingly a rattle was sprung, and duly answered by two or three more of those alphabetical gentlemen who emanate from Scotland Yard, by whose united efforts the refractory musician was carried out in triumph, firmly and safely seated in his own ponderous instrument, loudly insisting that he should be conveyed the interruption occasioned by this interesting occurrence was productive of a general clearance of twenty-four pleasant place, and the apartments which were so lately filled with airy silks and trusted nieces presented a strange jumble of rough clothes, dingy silk cloaks, very passe bonnets, and numerous heads enveloped in faded white handkerchiefs. Everything began to look miserable, candles were seen in all directions flickering with their inevitable destiny, bouquets were thrown carelessly upon the ground, and the very faintest odor of a cigar found its way from the street door into the drawing room. Then came the hubbub of struggling jarvies, the horse, continued inquiries of those peculiar beings that emerge from some unknown quarter of the great metropolis, and, live and move and had their being, at the doorsteps of party-giving people, what tales could those benighted creatures tell of secret pressures of hands, 
whispered sentences of sweet words, which hath led in after days to many a blissful union. What sighs must have fallen upon their ears as they have rolled up the steps and slammed to the doors of the vehicle which bore away the idol of the evening. But they had no romance no ambition but to call, my lord duke's coach. Then came the desolate stillness of the banquet hall deserted, the consciousness that the hour of grandeur had passed away. There was nothing to break the stillness but Mrs. Applebite counting up the spoons, and Mrs. Wadley outray decanting the remainders. Burke's heraldry, our amiable friend and classical correspondent, Death Burke, mind, yes, has lately mounted a coat of arms, Dexter and Sinister, a nose ghoulies and I sable, three annulets of ropes in chief, supported by two prize fighters proper. Motto, a suggestion for the formation of a society for the relief of foreigners afflicted with a short pocket and a long beard, Mr. Muntz to be immediately waved upon by a body of the unhappy sufferers, and requested to give his countenance and assistance to the establishment of an institution for the gratuitous shaving of destitute and hirsute foreigners. The gold snuff box. My aunt, Mrs. Cheeseman, is the very reverse of her husband. He is a plain, honest creature such as we read of in full-length descriptions by some folks, but equally comprehensive, though shortly done by others, under the simple name of John Bull as engarnished in his dress, as in his speech and action, whereas Mrs. Cheeseman, as I have just told you, is the counterpart of plainness, she has trinkets out of number, brooches, backed with every kind of hair, from the flaxen-headed cowboy to the deep-toned Jim Crow. Then her rings they are the surprise of her staring acquaintances, she has them from the most delicate oriental fabric to the massiveness of dogs' collars. Uncle Cheeseman says Mrs. C. thinks of nothing else, no sporting gentleman, handsomely furnished, in the golden days of pugilism, ever looked upon a ring with more delightful emotions, that going to bed, she bestows the same affectionate gaze upon them that mothers do upon their slumbering progeny, nor is that care and affection diminished in the morning. Her very imagination is a ring, seeing that it has neither beginning nor end her tender ideas are encircled by the four magical letters R-I-N-G. Even at church, we are told, she divides her time between sleeping and secret polishing. It has just occurred to me, that I might have saved you and myself much trouble had I at once told you that Aunt Cheeseman is a regular ringworm. But, to my uncle the only finery sported by him and I hardly think it deserving that word, peace.